How's it going? It's good. Should we apologize for for the technical difficulties at all? Or just let it ride? I think we just, we let it ride. I'm going to put a note in. Uh, So apologies for last, I guess we should contextualize the apology we're not going to give here. Okay. Which is the audio from last week is weird, and we're sorry, friends. But we're not sorry. We did our we're best to fix it. Fine about it because this isn't our full time job. We do our best, okay? But it is annoying when that stuff happens and you're listening. So hope it doesn't bother you guys too much. How's your week been? It's been pretty chill. I've just been like doing my HR consulting work, and. Uh, my supervisor went on maternity leave today. Oh, wild! Uh, rather unexpectedly. Un- so unexpectedly, like as in like I didn't know I was pregnant. Had or is no, no. Like knew she was pregnant, but I don't think was planning on having the baby today. Uh, oh, well, but that's what's happening. So those babies, they just never come when you schedule. No, nope, they're like I'm. I'm gonna go now. Uh-huh. Uh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm ready. And so you made a wonderful home, and now I would like to evict myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so very excited for her and her partner. Uh, what it meant for me was I like didn't do anything today because my boss's boss spent the whole day trying to figure out like what is her maternity leave plan. Mm, yeah. How long? I'm is... sure they like had one. How long is it? I have no idea. Oh, as a temp, that is information. Yeah, that you'll I don't get know. that when you need it, sort of thing. Maybe not up. You're yeah lower on the la the corporate ladder. Exactly. So I'm just sitting here doing my own happy little thing. Um, how about you? How's work been? Uh, very busy. My brain is mushy, but in a good way. I had a good day off today where I got more done than I thought I would. I did have this moment, though. I don't know if you feel the same way when you're trying to do errands and like everything you're trying to check off on your list, you get like 70% done. I had that happen Mm -hmm. earlier this week. So I got through like a task and I got right up until I could just be like, and that is complete and I've done all I can do. And it wouldn't happen. Um, One was because of a cell phone company being just perfect at customer service. Mm -hmm. What was the other thing that happened? Oh, I can't remember right now. Clearly it wasn't that important. Um, The cell phone company really took up more of my life than I wanted it to. I mean, three, I just... That's always the case. We don't have to get into the anecdote of it, but just, like, if I... Just... Customer service is maybe not the name I would go with if I, as the customer, not being served at all. Why am I calling you back? <laughs> you want info from me, and I'm calling you repeatedly to get... It is just nonsense. And as someone who cares about customer service, it's just, you know... Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. And I, I think part of it, too, is just like, I don't know what you're looking at. What's in my file? Like, what are you seeing about what my day has been like? Do you understand the experience I've had today? Or you're a new person who doesn't know what I'm coming in with. And I feel bad giving you all of my feelings. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough line to walk. I tried to be kind about it. But there was one person that she was like, yeah, you're going to have to do eight more things. That you've already done. And I was like, okay, you have a great day. Bye. And I was like, I felt bad about that afterwards. Oof. It was just. Oof, indeed. It's just, yeah. Trying to do it during a work day, too, is never successful. Oh, that was another thing. I tried to call some some about insurance. Ugh, it's such a boring story. It's just such an adult story. I hate telling you. Oh. <laughs> I had to call somebody about insurance. <laughs> and I, I misjudged the time zones. So then. Mm-hmm. 
I called them and I was like, ooh, I could get in there right under the line. And then they decide that they're closed at 445. Who closes at 445? Apparently everyone now. We're going to just wrap it up before end of business day. Because of people like me who ruin everybody's end of day and they can't get their stuff done. And I understand why they do it, but it was still super frustrating. Because <laughs> I was like, it's just a really quick thing. And then it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... I leave work at like 4.30, so I'm 100% that guy. Yeah, I get why you do. I get why you do. I do. I have to be better at time management. That's what we're all learning. It's fine. But it then caused annoyance where you're like, all these things are still on my list that I have to finish. And no one wants to do them. They're not fun tasks. No, they're very adult things. So just having them linger there. Woe is me. I got a lot of laundry done today. Big check. Yes. That's what I did as well today. Like all the blankets and it was a big sheet day and towels and I'm very excited about that. So that was a win. Mm-hmm. When you do laundry, are you the kind of person who's like, it's an, it's you get the whole process done, like washed, dried, folded away? Or do you leave clean laundry? Are you like a leave the clean laundry out for a few days kind of person? Uh, I want to be the first person. I'm always the second person. <laughs> Today I was the first person. <laughs> I think it's because I'm in a tiny house living situation and that really makes you, you can't mm-hmm. leave crap out or else you can't get anything done because there's there's limited space. The problem is when you're yeah. in a big house with rooms where you can just put all your laundry, <laughs> should be a closet, but you don't put it there. You put it on a couch or on a bed and then you spoon it for some reason because you'd rather just <laughs> not put it away. It's terrible. Um yeah, no, I feel better about life when I put it away, but I never do. Mm-hmm. There's always something lingering around, something that still needs to dry that you just haven't folded yet. But what are you? I'm mostly the former, but again, because I live in a tiny studio, so I, d- I don't have anywhere to put it. Yeah. That's not a way. Yeah. Uh, but spent like did it in between work tasks today. And I'm just like sitting here getting the evil eye from like three loads of clean laundry sitting on my bed that I have to put away tonight because otherwise I can't go to bed. I feel very satisfied when it's all folded. And then I, for some reason, hate the task of putting it in the closet or hanging it up. What is that? What is that disconnect? That's fascinating. Sort of like dishes. I love cleaning dishes. I hate putting them away out of the dishwasher. The last bit. I mean, like the dishwasher thing I get, like my my brother has really strong feelings about like that last part of the process. But the laundry for me, like the folding and putting away is always like the same. Like if I'm going to fold it, I am going to put it away. Oh. I'm never going to fold it, but then not put it away. In part because I don't have a laundry. I don't have a laundry basket is the thing. Like I have nowhere for folded clean laundry to live. Your couch. Other than That's where it away. lives. I don't, have a, I don't have a couch. Oh, that's true. The bed, I'm telling you. You spoon that giant like pile of laundry. It's very cozy. Duly noted. You feel a little bit like a raccoon in a garbage bag. But apparently that's a very satisfying feeling. yeah i don't know what it is i just complained about things being only 70 percent done and then i like relish in doing that to myself so there's probably some psychology there that i should unpack with a professional but but here we are instead everything's put away today so i did a good job today looking at all the dirty dishes in my sink right now (laughs) i don't have a dishwasher (laughs) here either so everything has to be hand washed Mm -hmm. um oh COVID experience, I was finally after, what month are we in? October? No, we're in November now. Oh my God. 
Oh my god. So what what month what month of pandemic are we in? We're at eight. We're at eight months. Uh, but yeah, just I a little over eight months. First bottle of seventy percent uh rubbing alcohol, which is the stuff oh, that kills oh. things. Like they were throwing fifties around at me a couple months ago, but I didn't buy it because I was like, that's not gonna do the job you need. I finally, I found, I could have bought many bottles, but I was a good consumer. Mm-hmm. Pat myself on the back and I only bought one because also I'm in a tiny house and I can't put a bunch of stock anywhere. But I finally have rubbing alcohol so I can make some like cleaners and stuff like that. It's a big day. Nice. That's very exciting. <laughs> These are the milestones of a, of a pandemic existence. It's been so long. <laughs> What needs cleaned? Everything. Do you do you have like a little like like little hand sand container that you bring around with you now, or yeah. do you, are you like a big bottle person? Oh, I have a What's big your preferred bottle dispenser. From my road trip, I've learned a couple things about myself. A big bottle in the car, little bottles in all the bags. Um, you know your grocery bag, and then maybe like your your purse uh, or backpack. And then I also bring a full like shower caddy soap dish. In my purse with me mm. now. So that if I'm ever in a bathroom, I never have to worry about if they have soap or not. I'm going to wash my hands. Um, yeah. I just need water. Maybe even I could buy a bottle of water, but I'm still going to wash my hands. And then I just keep a bar of Dove soap in there. Nice. That's my biggest lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. And I find that very satisfying. Yeah. The soap is a good call. Where you're like, you don't know what kind of soap is in those little liquid things or if it's like cut with water or something. I don't know. I know what kind of soap I have. My little container can wipe off my little container if it gets dirty. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. I'm going to take it on all of my like airplane trips now too. You just don't mess around. Yeah, I think that's a really good call. Who's first? That was the question I had asked. I'm looking here at the episode list and there's a the question i think we want to ask is do we follow the last episode we released or the last episode we recorded because i think they're they're different released probably okay but that was a do no that's not a twofer because you haven't released that one yet spoilers in that case i think i have to go first which i know is not your preferred way of doing things but also we could just do whatever we want because we <laughs> That's did true. you can go first i'm fine with it although i will say your voice and your picture have unsynced so it's gonna be an interesting experience for you yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> so far it's okay Okay, it's gonna be fine. So wait, I'm gonna listen first. Yes, I think that's the deal. I wanna I wanna center myself in this story. I'm gonna <laughs> this is what I'm gonna do. Okay, great. Sorry. I'm very excited for your story. Okay. Let's jump in then. Okay, great. I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. 1867. Gonna go doll style again. 1867. Okay. Yes. Okay. Civil War is over. It's like the immediate post-war period. We're in Boston. Yankee stronghold big like abolitionist community Mm -hmm. and our lady is born (laughs) her name is emily balsh she is the daughter of a prominent new england family which is just one of my favorite phrases they're all prominent aren't they i mean at some point it's just they're all prominent it's fine in every well yeah they're the ones that make history i guess and uh her 
family's particular claim to fame is that her father served as the secretary to Senator Charles Sumner, the abolitionist senator who rather famously got assaulted on the floor of Congress and caned by a yeah. member of the House of Representatives. He He's the one that got hit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like severely injured and hosp- like effectively hospitalized for a long time. Because tensions were so high about the Civil War. Yes, it's sort of like the it's one of the last big violent things that happens in Congress pre-Civil War. Uh, so that's what dad did. Mom, Ellen, teacher. So like, very important, a little less violent. <laughs> Only just. Those kids are crazy sometimes. Yes. Uh, and so she, Emily, is the second of six kids and is going to grow up in this sort of upper class, very educated family. Uh, and because she's growing up in the 1870s and 80s, uh, women's colleges are a pretty big thing at this point. Yeah. Quite, relatively speaking. Quite the trend. Yeah. And so unlike a lot of our other women who like education's a big thing, but they like can't do anything with it, she's going to go to college. Okay. All right. And so in fact, she's actually going to be a member of the first graduating class of Bryn Mawr College, which is a women's college outside Philadelphia that we've talked about mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. And so she is going to attend and graduate in 1889. Majors aren't really a thing yet in the same way we think of them now but she's going to study uh like classics and literature but also economics which is sort of a new developing field at this point uh and that's that's her jam uh you know if i guess that's kind of thing right if you like econ you really like econ and she really likes econ and so after she graduates she's going to win a scholarship to spend a year studying in paris sort of doing like what we would consider like graduate school now okay and she While she's there, she writes a book about how the public welfare system works in France, which gets published by the American Economic Association in 1893. So like, it's a big, it's a big deal for like someone who's not who's like just out of undergrad. Yeah, get this big book published. This is my negative Nancy feeling where Americans don't really like to talk about welfare. So how'd the book go over? So that's the really interesting thing. This is that weird period in American history we're like sort of the beginning of what we might call the progressive era where you have all of these educated people thinking about like how do we make government work better for people uh and yes that comes with like a whole big bag of racism and eugenics and uh nativism and there's like a lot of stuff bundled in there but one of the things people are thinking about fairly seriously for the first time is like how do we design a system to like support people who are poor uh that's not the like poor house system, the like Dickensian make it a living hell system that like England has been using. There's like a weird jolt of empathy or something in the water. What what happens? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not really clear like why at that particular point we decide we're going to start caring about people in a more serious way. Um, I think part of it is like you have the growth of this middle class who just like from a principal perspective wants to see government work better. Um, like, they, they sort of don't love the, like, corrupt, non-professionalized idea of government prior to this point. So it's where you get, like, a professionalized civil service at this point. Sort of, like, the beginnings of, like, social work as a profession coming up at this point. Um, and you have economists who are sort of thinking about, like, how do we design systems that work better for people? Because uh, you, you also have, like, this sort of Gilded Age, all of the, like, Carnegie and Rockefeller big money is floating around Mm. at this time too. So wealth inequality is a thing people are thinking pretty seriously about for the first time. 
Fascinating. Yeah. So lots of parallels to today in more ways than one. Um, and so when Emily comes back to the U.S. after spending the year in France, she is going to get involved in some of those movements. And the particular aspect she's going to get involved in is something called the Settlement House Movement, which are these uh, communities of university-educated, usually middle or upper-class women who go and live in poor and working-class communities, usually in cities, mm. and do sort of organizing and education and, like, social work services in those communities. Um, so kind like a like a little bit, like, there's not, like, a necessarily, like, a great analogy today but it's a little bit like missionary work but without the religious aspect being as fronted and like sort of proto social services because governments aren't really offering that at this point Mm -hmm. and also a bit of like there's all these educated women coming out who like don't necessarily want to go be teachers which is pretty much the only other career opportunity they want but they do want to be like doing active work out in the world well and like there's something to be said about it's always tied into like religion at this point too right it's a very christian focused Mm -hmm. aspect of uh outreach in that way and it fulfills a lot of you know requirements of a christian upbringing yeah definitely like participating in community and giving back and all of that stuff it's one of the better things yeah people take from organized religion yeah and having heard you say that i think like one if you're familiar with the jesuit volunteers Mm -hmm. um or sort of the they like it's groups of uh usually recent college graduates who go live like in a house together and all volunteer with different usually like catholic social services organizations all around the country and so that might be like a modern comparison to this kind of movement um although when the settlement houses it's almost exclusively women which is one of the really interesting things about it um and so Emily gets involved with that um, through like a summer school on social issues she's at. She meets Jane Adams, who's sort of who is like the one of the major figures in the settlement house movement. Uh, she founds Hull House in Chicago, which is one of the sort of first and leading of these organizations. Um, and Adams is actually going to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize oh. in 1931 in recognition for her work. Big deal. Uh, so really, really, really big deal. Uh, so Emily becomes friends with her, uh, they become sort of professional collaborators, and as a result of that experience, sort of coupled with the academic interest she has in questions of, like, labor and poverty and policy, she's going to go work at a settlement house in Boston uh, for a year called Denison House. And it's interesting, like, one of the biographies talks about her decision and sort of frames it like she, in Paris, she studied the poor without meeting them, and when she got back to the United States, she realized like that necessarily wasn't necessarily like the, the best way to go about doing that. And so when she gets back to the U.S., she's actually going to work with the communities that like academically she might be interested in studying, sort of bridging the like scholar activist divide like, in a way that is really interesting. Audibly sighed when you said she realized that maybe that wasn't the way to go. If she was like, come on. Frankie realizes that too. <sighs> yeah. What's the word I'm thinking of? Where it's like condescension? Is that the word I'm thinking of? I think that could be applied in some of those situations <laughs> for sure. Okay. But at the same time, she is still interested in studying. So it's not that she's, you know, going to go off and just be an activist. And so in the 1890s, she's in a way sort of bouncing back and forth between doing like really active social work and then also doing what is in effect more grad school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's going to study economics at Radcliffe, which is the 
Harvard annex at this point. Like Harvard wasn't letting women in, but you could still basically get the same education. You just couldn't call it Harvard. Um, so she studies at Radcliffe. She goes to the University of Chicago for a little bit. And she's going to spend a good chunk of time at the University of Berlin, which is a fairly common thing to do is to like go to Germany for graduate school at this point because they're they're a big deal. And they're more progressive about letting women in or? Progressive is a strong word, but they would let women take classes. Uh, Emily sort of talks about (laughs) this. We won't give you a diploma, but you can, I guess, come in and like audit. And that's in in effect uh, how that works. Like she had to apply for permission from like the culture ministry and from like the chancellor of the university and from each individual professor she wanted to take courses with. But once she like did that, there was like a not insubstantial cohort of women who were also taking graduate courses with her. So it wasn't like she was the only woman in her class, but at the same time, it wasn't like a standard thing. Mm-hmm. Like there was, you had to jump through some hoops um, sort of like a, like a middle ground in the sexist way. In that you have to go above and beyond to do the thing that the men are just allowed to do no matter what. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be exactly. exceptional to do the mediocre thing. Just checking. It's not mediocre. It's grad school. It's like it's it is intense, but we should all do the same thing because it's about brains. Yeah, one would one would imagine. While she is doing this graduate study, she's really interested in questions of labor and immigration and consumption and the economic role of women, like all of these sort of big questions that are floating out there in economic thought at this point. And so, when she is done grad school, she. As, as these things worked back in the day before academia was like a jobless hellscape, she was just like on a boat back from Europe and met the chair of uh, Wesley College's economics department who offered her a job. She was just like, you seem great. Do you want to come teach at the college where I run the economics department? And Emily Walsh was like, yes, yes, please. I would like to do that. Yeah. And that's how she got a faculty job. That's how that worked back in the day. Uh, it's not how that works now. No, there's some more red tape they found that would be helpful. Just a little bit. Yeah. And so she is going to join the faculty of uh, Wesley in 1896 and is going to teach there uh, basically like for the next two decades. It's going to be like her home base. Can I ask you a very ignorant question? Wellesley as in like the Wellesley? Like, you know, like the fancy, famous, the fancy women's college? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yes. That's what I figured she was kind of at that caliber starting out, so... So fancy, schmancy, very, like, prestigious women's college. What are they? The Are they the seven sisters or the five? What are they? Yes, it's a member of the original seven sisters. Yeah, yeah. it is It is seven. Uh, did Hillary Clinton go there? No. Where'd she go? She went to Radcliffe, right? She went to one of them. Uh, no, both... Um, Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright went to Wesley. It was Wesley. Jeopardy, I'm ready for you. You just let me know. Oh, Alex Trebek. Sorry, didn't mean to bring it up. Oh. That hit me harder than I thought it would. Yeah, same. Considering I whenever he was on Jeopardy, all of our fa- sorry, anecdote, tra- sidetrack. Uh, whenever he was on Jeopardy and he pronounced something fresh or French, um, my whole family would just roll our eyes at him because he sounded so just, come on, Alex. Like, just like the most French accent to, to the word. That he could put on it, where it was like milieu, which everyone says in common, like American speak, whatever, milieu, right? Milieu. It was just, anyway. So we would always just roll our eyes at Alex Trebek. But then he was passing away, and I was like, oh, Alex Trebek died on our family chat. 
my dad is like, wow, you all really pour your heart out. I thought he was super. I was like, I guess he's like your uncle, you know, like the chastising that we had for him was always like familial meant. I don't know. Or just like, he's that one uncle who will corner you at a party and just tell you facts about things that you don't care about. And you're like, okay, great. Um, yeah, cool. But he's actually really sweet and lovely and like, you can't really harp on him too much. He's a nice man, you know? Anyway, that's my little Alex Trebek story. <laughs> yeah, I haven't watched Jeopardy in years because I just like don't own a television anymore. But oh, it's I legit. Very fond memories of being um, young and just like watching every day. I only watch it when I'm with my parents. It's like part of the dinner time ritual. My mom can't make it past Jeopardy bedtime wise. So that's sort of the end of the <laughs> evening for her. So we have to do it. Cute. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Wellesley. We're at Wellesley. We're at Wellesley. Future alma mater. She's going to be there. She's teaching uh, mostly economics, but also some sociology because those are very closely linked at this point in time. And very quickly uh, becomes clear that she is a little bit more of a leftist than maybe the college thought when they hired her. I don't know why she so would she be. Starts so she starts teaching courses on the history of socialism Uh-oh. and becomes active in local labor organizing. What year are we in? In 1899. Oh, hey. So we're 1899, just like turn of the century. Yeah, populism. Uh, we, don't love we don't love unions at this point no. uh, if we're elites. Not at all. Yeah. So when she donates or lends $200 to the strike fund of a local like shoemakers organization that's on strike, uh, the college president is not super jazzed about that. Okay. And she's got an economic background of like intense study of mm -hmm. economic systems and how they disaffect people and charity work for the poor and disenfranchised. Yeah, I see this combo. I see this combo happening. Not a stretch right, for me. not super surprised. No. Not a stretch at all. No. Uh, and so teaching, activism, and she's also going to be pretty involved in sort of like, what am I called, like civic capacities. So works on state commissions around, you know, child labor, factory safety. She serves on the Massachusetts Minimum Wage Commission, which drafts the country's first minimum wage law. And then... He wasn't happy. Did he... Wait, did she get fired? Wait. Did I miss that? No. Oh, just, mm, just a big side eye at the parties. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I mean, like, spoiler alert, she is going to get fired for it, but uh, not for a little bit. Called it. Okay. Okay. So I think we're all going to be really surprised to hear that in 1906, uh, when her contract is up for renewal, she publicly announces that she's a socialist. We're shocked about that. Wait, I think. she, what's that tactic? What is that logical tactic? Or is she like, fire me, I dare you? I, I want to think it's that, because basically she, the my understanding of the framing of it is like, she wanted the, the president of the college to know, like when they rehired her for her next contract, that like, this is how it's going to be. I, and the president was like, okay, I guess we'll make that work. I wonder if it's also like, see, they fire you for being a socialist. They're not a cool and groovy. <laughs> it's not groovy in the 1900s, but um, they're not, you know, I wonder if there was some bad blood there and so she was like i'm gonna make it very clear about why i'm not getting hired again because it could be so easily swept on oh we just start growing apart we're not seeing eye to eye and we think better things are for you in the future so you can go do that and she's like i'm a socialist next day i was fired i wonder why you know if she 
It feels mm-hmm. like to me from the brief moment you were talking that she knew the writing on the wall was coming her way and so she wanted it to be clear. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely some of that there. And interestingly, sh- she is going to get fired, but not necessarily for the socialism part of it. And also, interestingly, she, even after she does get fired, she doesn't like slam Wellesley in the way one would imagine you might if you get fired for your political beliefs. So how? Okay. Okay. But 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 the shady thing she does is she doesn't donate her papers to them in her will. She gives it to a different college. Burn. Uh, which is like the academic, wow. right? That's an academic burn. If like, ever you've heard of one. many years, I'm assuming. Like this 30 year burn late. I don't know when she dies. Maybe it's not very long past now, but okay. Wild. Okay. So wait, how long, how long after she says she's a socialist, her contract does not get renewed. So her contract is going to get renewed. It does. At this point. Okay. And so she's still teaching. Okay. Openly. So openly socialist faculty they member. Are, they are hating that. They just, I can imagine the board meetings are just so pissed. <laughs> You're not wrong. It's the board that's going to do her in it a little bit. Uh-huh. But first, we have to get to world. We have to get to World War One. Okay, that's what's really okay. going to do it. Don't jump the gun. Okay. So before World War One, the early 20th century, we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast. Uh, in addition to sort of the progressive movement that's happening, there's also this huge spike in nativism as the immigrants coming to the U.S. shift from Northern Europe, you know, Britain, Germany to Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Italians, people from the Balkans and Russia. Uh, the U.S. not known for being super tolerant mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, becomes even more <laughs> sort of xenophobic and racist at this point, particularly to those immigrants. When white people meant something very different. Yes. Uh, so not huge fans. And by we, I mean, like wasps who run everything in the u.s at this point not huge fans of like this big wave of largely catholic largely southern and eastern european immigrants really hated the rolling in not a fan of the papists well anybody that's a a language because it makes the makes people so insecure when they don't know what people are saying rather than like curious about how to learn a language it makes you worried about what they're saying about you which i think says more about the person listening than anything else where it's like, why do you think oh, they're talking sure. about you? And also, what if they are? That's their right. If you're being a moron. Or not. They're just allowed to talk. <laughs> like, I don't know. I I always blows my mind when you see those like awful videos of people getting caught for being absolute racists in public. Mm-hmm. For people, it's usually like people going about their day and speaking to a family member or friend in a language that is not English. And for some reason, that's a ludicrous offense to these people that they have to like call them out and say for some reason that this is america you guys speak english which america does not have a national language officially and nope nearly as many i mean like what's i forget how many people speak spanish anyway it's, it's just it's it's never bothered me as a human to be like in an aisle of a store and someone says something in Spanish or French or German or whatever. I go, oh, look, there's somebody speaking German in the store. How how interesting. What a what a world we live in. Not personally affected. Full stop. They're just thought. trying to get some milk. Like, leave them alone. 
anyway, sorry, another tangent. No, no, no. It's just we haven't collectively as a country hadn't gotten to that point in the early 1900s. We're still at the you Germans are fine. Like we're not super fans of it, but like we'll allow Germans. But like we're not fans after World War One. No, but this, so this is pre World War One. So this is that awkward point where we're like Germans we're okay are still okay, with but like. It. S- but in big air quotes, like the Slavs, yeah, or the, the whole Italians, Eastern European, not so much Italians, Irish for sure, right? Yeah, and so the interesting thing about like economics at this point is that at our current moment in the two thousands, we at least economists pretty much agree like immigration is a good thing. More ingr- Im- yeah, more immigration is better for the economy. And, like that's the economic consensus at this point. In the early 1900s, that is not an agreed upon thing. And in fact, a lot of the sort of leading figures in the economics field are pushing for immigration restrictions. Did you say we we think nowadays that immigration is a good thing? Economists, Economists think it's you. good for the economy. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I, I would by no way say that there is a consensus in the United States that immigration is a good thing. Economists think that is true. Economists of then did not. This okay, is correct. Because she's an economist, so it's relevant. Got it, got it, got it. She's an economist, which is why we care about economists. <laughs> However, she, Emily... This is the only reason. we shouldn't... Uh-huh. Thinks we shouldn't restrict immigration. Thinks, she thinks that having immigrants from a diverse range of countries is a good thing, which... Novel. I Which I have to admit, like, the number of, like, turn-of-the-century white women we've done who, like, do, like, some amazing work but are also deeply problematic in yeah. other areas, it's yeah. really refreshing to find one who's, like not openly racist and xenophobic yeah. it's refreshing yeah so she in this sort of scholar activist tradition that she's cultivated for herself mm-hmm. is like i'm gonna do something about this and the thing i'm gonna do is i'm gonna spend two years of my life living in slavic immigrant communities in the u.s and traveling to the austro-hungarian empire in europe to like get to know those communities and to do research about them and then i'm gonna write a 536 page book about them so that is like both deeply scholarly but also is an impassioned case for the benefits of open immigration bold very bold very chill right Mm -hmm. that's like that's the nerd way of dealing with a problem read my book about it about it Uh, yeah my 536 page not a novella a book a harry potter sized book it's a power it's a power play uh and this is sort of the moment where she really, I think, solidifies a lot of her, what we might term as like an internationalist perspective. So thinking that free and open immigration is a good thing, that we shouldn't really make differences between nations, like everyone should have equal rights on the international sphere, and sort of holding on to this strong anti-racist impulse that's informing a lot of this work. And interestingly, in the in the 1930s, She's going to come back to this idea that immigration is a good thing. We shouldn't have restrictions on it, specifically around refugees, and in particular, Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis in the 30s, who, for people who need a reminder, the U.S. was really bad <laughs> about accepting refugees in the 30s, like, like hor- horrifically bad, some people might say. And so the fact that she is really consistently over the course of basically like half a century being like, no, this is a thing we should do. This is a thing we should do is I would say fairly impressive for the time and for her place in it. For sure. And it ties into her other thing, the thing that is that is going to get her fired, which is her pacifism. So one of the like interesting things about World War One is that there's like a really strong 
anti-war bent in the U.S. before we go in. Similar to sort of like the isolationist impulse in the 30s before we go into World War II, but in some ways even stronger because at least in the 30s, you can make the case that like Japan and Germany are, are straight up bad guys and that like we're fighting them because it's the right thing to do. It's harder to make that case for World War I because at least from a certain American perspective, it's just all of these European powers fighting each other for no particularly good reason and why would we want to get involved with that? So there's this really strong anti-war movement in the U.S. prior to the entrance into World War One. Also, like, it's not part of the national identity that we are a superpower, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of what makes modern America in foreign policy are those two world wars, in my opinion. Oh, 100%. Like, because of how we did in World War One, and 100% because of what we did in World War Two makes us the kind of, I hate it, but, like, leader or, like, big presence at all those group tables um because for the whole 19th century it was sort of like what are you guys doing over there you know they might come over and mess with some stuff but what are you doing do you have money do you have any money and all of a sudden we have all the money they were like oh okay all right but yeah they were fine leaving us alone in a lot of ways too but once they started sinking ships it got tense tense i think is the appropriate word for it and so in, in 1915, pre-U.S. entrance into the war, but the war is happening. Um, That's how we Emily do Walsh world wars. Group of, we let them yeah, get we're started to the party. and just go, well, you guys, how you doing? We're okay. We're going to sit over here in a minute and just build up some stuff. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We're just getting prepped. Yeah, we'll see you in a bit. Yep. And, and so she and about 40 other American women go to the International Congress of Women which is an attempt to sort of create a framework through which the conflict can get mediated. So trying to reach out to contacts in governments and sort of other neutral powers in Europe to try to force the belligerent powers to come to the table and talk about things. Doesn't go super well. Uh, the fact that the war keeps going for several years after that is pretty clear evidence of how successful it is. But she is able to use her connections with President Wilson, who was actually one of her professors at Bryn Mawr while she was studying there, uh, to try to lobby the U.S. And one of the sort of ways she eventually has an influence on the peace process is she writes some proposals for you know how it might work, share some of them with Wilson, and they eventually sort of serve as some of the basis for his 14 points plan, which is the plan that he's going to bring to the the peace, the eventual peace summit that leaves us with the Treaty of Versailles and the end of World War One. So sort of like not, obviously doesn't achieve the goal she sets out to, which is like end the war in 1915, but plays sort of some role in laying the international or the intellectual framework for how Wilson goes about approaching the war when it's done. Uh, she's going to write for The Nation, which is a pretty famous uh, left-leaning <laughs> publication, uh, and is also going to write about uh, a sort of a series of academic articles on the impact of militarism on women. And I think it's sort of like an interesting perspective to bring. Yeah. And and the really cool thing is you would you would imagine she's a prominent woman in the anti-war movement. There's one prominent woman anti-war in Congress at this point. Uh, Our Lady Jeanette Rankin. Yes. Shout out. I love her so much. I couldn't, I was really hoping to find some sort of record of them like meeting and having like a conversation or like interacting in some way. 
but I, I was able to find that uh, Emily Balsh is present in the visitors gallery in Congress when Congress votes to go to war. So she would have been in the same room as Jeanette Rankin when she cast her no vote uh. against going to war. Uh, Which I imagine would have been, like, a really cool thing to get I to see. I love that. Even if they didn't meet, that's a big moment for both of them, I would imagine. Like... Yeah, I would imagine as well. I do wonder... Yeah, a woman watching a woman do that had to have been. Especially someone as, as worldly as her and as, as, you know, thoughtful about what that kind of process... Yeah, yeah. Especially because Jeanette Rankin gave such reasons for doing... When she cast her vote. Like, it was, a, it was a statement. Very cool. Yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. And apparently that vote happens at, like, three in the morning. So also that just must have been, like, a, a fairly high drama, fairly high stakes kind of moment. Uh, and then once the war, once the U.S. gets involved in the war, uh, Emily is going to continue to be involved in anti-war organizations, including one organization that's the precursor to the modern ACLU. And this is going to get her sort of caught up in what is basically like the re- the post-World War One Red Scare. So I think we'd sort of think, is there being like a, a post-World War II Red Scare? Yeah, her record does not does not speak well to that moment. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, she, so luckily she is not going to be like arrested or imprisoned or like none of those things, but she ends up on all of these lists of like, quote unquote, subversives or communists or people who like, we need to be watching as the government uh, because there's sort of very, there's, there's an attitude that if you're anti-war, you must be anti-American. Oh my and God. You're also probably a communist. Oh my God. They're so out of touch with what was going on in this country. Okay. Well, and that's the, that's the thing I find so interesting about World War One in particular is that's this moment where being, and I, I guess it, this is sort of similar to World War Two, but it's very pronounced in World War One is that it is, in, in many cases, it is illegal to protest the war. Like, your, your freedom of speech does not exist when it comes to talking about the war. Uh, and there's, like, a, there's a faculty member at Columbia who's very famously, like, fired right at the beginning of U.S. involvement in the war because he's voiced anti-war opinions. Uh, and Emily, finally getting around to it, in 1918 is not going to have her contract renewed at Wesley. Uh, the... Board says it's because she's taken too much leave to do these an- the anti-war stuff that she's been doing. Mm. Uh, which I will just say, does she does spend like four of her five-year contract on leave or on sabbatical to like do these things? Mm. So she's not spending a whole lot of time teaching. But the real reason they they don't renew her contract is because she's so vocally anti-war, and they could kind of stomach the socialism part, but. At this point, being openly anti-war is something they can't, as a board, support. And so they let her go. Okay. Uh, hmm. We have uh, pretty established, pretty vocal, pretty prominent anti-war leftist economist figure who's out of a job. What's she going to do? She's going to go run a major international organization instead. She's going to be fine. One might say, like, kicked out and promoted up, in a sense. Um so she's, uh, after the war, participates in another one of these, like, international women's conferences. And in 1919, 1920, 1921, is involved in the founding of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is this big international organization made up of 
different national organizations of women who are opposed to war and who are also invested in a different, like a range of social causes, but sort of broadly organized under this pacifist disarmament, anti-war campaign. Um, Like one of the things she does is writes a report on the U.S. occupation of Haiti that goes on in the 1920s. Um, But they're also sort of pushing for uh, like peace treaties, League of Nations style stuff, where it's just like any systems we can build to stop countries going to war. That's what we're interested in. And it's in this period in her life that she's also officially going to join the Quakers. She's always sort of been interested in them, but as religious groups, especially Christian religious groups go, they're really big on pacifism. They sort of come very much from that tradition. And at the same time that she's becoming a Quaker, she also sort of disavows socialism, or at least like the sort of Marxist socialism that's come to be prominent at that point, because she thinks it's it's moving away from the pacifism that she's interested in. Yeah. And so she moves more towards the sort of Gandhi nonviolent tradition at that point in the 1920s. Guess who else was hanging out with Gandhi? Jeanette Rankin. They must have hung out. I like that's the thing. I just I want to find they had to like the picture of them together or something because they can't not have like spent some time together. Giant pacifists in like the World War era. Yeah, hundred percent. But I I couldn't find it. But also I was rushing my research today, so it's possible it exists. And it's I just fine. like didn't look hard enough. When World War Two breaks out, interestingly, I was sort of she accepts that the lesser of two evils is like beating the Nazis, which. If you're a pacifist, hard choice to make, but I think at the end of the day, like, right call? Yep. Uh, yep. But she is going to keep being involved in the organization she's working with and sort of refocuses their attention on supporting interned Japanese Americans uh, who are being unlawfully imprisoned at this point. Man, she just always has her finger on the zeitgeist of the thing that's, yeah, she's right side mm-hmm. of history on most things. That's pretty staggering. Yeah, which... <laughs> Very for odd. a white woman in the early twentieth century, traveler? is she knows too much. Hard to tell, but like something went right somewhere, and that's just an exciting thing to see at this point in time. From an affluent wasp of New, e- from an affluent wasp of New England, it's pretty, it's pretty smart. <laughs> no, that's mean. Um, that's no, uh, but but not untrue. But at I least just... at this, at least at this time in history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and. So all of this is actually going to culminate then the sort of lifetime of work, activism, anti-war uh, campaigning in her getting the Nobel Peace Prize in 1946. Yeah, so she wins. Uh, she she splits the prize with John Mott, who runs the YMCA. Uh, but she wins for her lifetime commitment to promoting peace. Uh, at She's not able to travel to Stockholm for the ceremony, so has her acceptance speech read. But there's this line in it uh, that I think sort of sums it basically hits all of her high points, uh, which is that I am hoping that 1946 will mark a turning point in the age-old effort to rid the world of war, to national disarmament, to, reunif- to renunciation of power politics, and to the development of international trusteeship, not only for dependent peoples, but for regions and interests which are essentially supernatural in character, such as the polar regions and the main waterways of the world. So sort of main points there are pacifism, getting rid of war, uh, national disarmament, sort of getting rid of as much military force as we can, renunciation of power politics, fairly straightforward, um, and to the development of international trusteeship, which is sort of her way of thinking about decolonization, which if we want to pick one place where like she could be a little bit better, 
this is sort of that like I'm not sure how familiar you are with like the League of Nation mandates idea, which is basically like rather than countries owning colonies, like the League of Nations or the UN administers territories that are former colonies as they make their way to being independent states. So sort of like a middle ground. She's not fully like give everyone independence, but is also not hold on to your colonies and sort of find finding a middle ground. Um, but sort of the interesting thing about that is she's sort of thinking about that about like former colonies but also about these like really crucial regions that she thinks countries shouldn't control like the poles the north pole south pole she also thinks a lot about waterways like the suez canal the panama canal basically these critical parts of the world without which like the world as a whole doesn't really function and she's a believer that like no one country should be able to control those really crucial areas but that like collaboratively the world should work work out a way to administer them together which is ultimately what the the un decides to do with antarctica like antarctica is a part of the world that no one owns just like it's meant for sort of communal scientific endeavors so in that way she's also a bit ahead of her time who put up a fight about that some people did actually let me guess Mm, america and the ussr Mm, just guessing it was around that time uh we i think i don't think there i think if i want i want to say maybe it's argentina Tina. I mean, they I are it's the, close. It's the countries closest to Antarctica, mm-hmm. I think, that ultimately throw up more of a fight about it. And I think there are some countries who still have, like, unrecognized claims on the continent. But, like, for the most part, everyone's been like, yeah, no, that's probably a good idea. In the same way that, like, we all agree no one can own the moon. Like, no one can own Antarctica. Do we, though? Can we get that in writing? I think they're <laughs> trying to change that now. Ugh. Just stop it. Oh my gosh. Well, isn't that the, I mean, what I had, what I was struck by is like, oh, I, I think my Americanism, my American dream ideal is like, would be a perfect reason. Like if America was the nation that could figure itself out to cohabitate with many different types of people. And that example of showing that many cultures can collide and come together and break and, and have have friction. I'm not saying it's like a smooth thing, but it's a, it's a it's destiny could be to show an example of all of these nations, representatives of nations in that our cultures are all melded, could show that war is stupid because they're all living here in a space together. And why are you fighting? because <laughs> of these ideological differences when you can live side by side like that idea of america is very appealing and like you can see why <coughs> war is sort of rendered pointless when you have a country full of people of differences which is unique of its kind and then more nations are i'm sorry my dog is now gonna drink really loudly on the recording <laughs> as i'm waxing poetic about america but i don't know sometimes it sometimes i like to that's where my um patriotism shows wouldn't it be great if this multicultural multi-ethnic multi-everything nation could be an example to the world of like why are you fighting with them it doesn't matter we can all do this together a humanitarian nation yeah that's a that's like a very biden-esque aspiration for the u.s which i think is a is a worthwhile thing to strive for for sure that we we have the potential and like the the aspirational desire to be that kind of country. And I think in a way, Emily Balsh is sort of articulating one version of that, which is like, yeah, we should be an open, welcoming country to a whole range of people 
and our engagement with the rest of the world should be with an eye towards international cooperation as opposed to international domination. She, yeah. In fact, like a lot of her academic work in the 30s is writing about American economic imperialism, which is something I think a lot of people talk about mm-hmm. now that like America in, sort of extends its power out into the world with its economic forces, mm. companies, its ability to spend lots of money on things. Mm. And she's thinking seriously about that in the 30s and looking at how the U.S. is getting involved in the world from an economic perspective. And vice versa in that it's a nation of consumers that are, that at the time with the rising middle class could spend money on a lot of goods coming in. So like you want to sell in America just as much as you want to get goods from America, which one could say Mm -hmm. is very different nowadays. But, you know, if you have a wealthy bunch of people in your country that want to spend money it makes you very uh, appealing to the world um, for sure full of citizens of many backgrounds that are open to your products that might be interesting to people of different backgrounds i don't know you know it's an interesting market and unique of its kind so and so emily balsh is gonna the, like this is one of the things where i'm like I know nothing about her from 1946 until she passes away in 1961. I imagine she was doing stuff because that just seems to be her MO, but wasn't able to find really any information about what she does. Um, But I imagine she's doing things. I imagine they're pretty cool. Uh, And she's going to pass away in 1961 at the age of 94, which is just wild. Um, And like the way I sort of think about that is like Emily Balsh is born like three years after the end of the civil war and my mother is alive when she passes away so just like in it just for me it was a moment of just like thinking in the scale of the, the history in which we live in like yeah. it is all still so close to us yeah yeah it's not like it, it both happened a really long time ago but that's when you feel its effect on you it's like not yeah it's like not long at all at the same time no yeah it struck me today where i heard like Somebody listening to, I think it was a podcast where they were like, in this year, the da da da, and Jonas Salt patented the first polio vaccine. And I was like, oh yeah, my parents were like, not babies for that. They were like alive children for a polio vaccine to exist, which means this is the first time I've thought of this. My parents could have gotten polio, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of twisted it in a different way for me. Like they had a couple years there where my grandmas were like, and grandpas were worried about that in a different way and how wild that must have been and like i don't know i guess it was just vaccines on the brain but um yeah made that immediacy uh, and and i didn't get a polio vaccine right no did i Mm -hmm. no i did smallpox that's the one i'm thinking of um that's just wild to me um yeah 1867 to 1960 that's pretty good yeah that's a good that's a good chunk good for her yeah, she must have been doing stuff in the 50s. Yeah, I can only imagine. There was a Korean War. There was the HUAC nonsense. There was a bunch of silliness. Yeah. And then and then my just my favorite thing is, right, like when she passes away, she does not give her papers to the college that employed her for two decades, but gives them to someone else. That is some shady nonsense. Who does she give them to? <laughs> nice little snub. To Swarthmore College, which I thought was really interesting because it's just down the road from Bryn Mawr, but she doesn't give them to Bryn Mawr either. Burn. Such a burn. She's like... <laughs> <laughs> like I will Who give was to that a group. I'm not sure why Swarthmore. That would be an interesting thing. I think I could probably go read the collection notes and see like why yeah. why necessarily that was a thing. Wow. Okay. I love a pacifist. I'm always I'm 
Oh, a turn of the century pacifist. She's so on top of it the whole time. Trendsetter. Yeah, I really like, really like that about her. It's really, from like a research perspective, it was really enjoyable to get to read about someone who's like just hitting all of the high points. Well, it really makes for the argument of like everyone was racist back then. And you go, were they though? Because here's the thing. They weren't. These ideas didn't just come. These just ideas didn't come out of nowhere where everyone was just like, we're okay with being racist. There's still some stragglers out there saying like, I don't think that's okay. Mm, No, I don't think that's okay. I've read Mm -hmm. the I've read the stuff and that doesn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think the the other reason I was really interested in doing her this week uh, is just because I've been thinking a lot about sort of organizers and that that being like a like a role. Yeah, good deal. We've obviously seen it's been really important in Georgia with like Stacey Abrams, Deborah Scott, Helen Butler, mm. Amber Bell, Tamika Atkins, all of these mm. black women organizing mm. in Georgia to Change turn the world. it blue. They changed the world. And that I was like really interested in like what is organizing? Like what are what are other ways organizing manifests? And so this like this way of organizing these like big international groups bringing together women from a bunch of different countries mm. is looks very different than that sort of like very nitty gritty on the ground like door knocking but is doing the exact same work right it's getting people together putting them in a context where they feel empowered to work on bigger issues and doing just like the day in day out like administrative stuff that you have to do to make that kind of organization happen and like this is this is a different version of that but still very much in that same vein which i really enjoyed getting to learn more about what happens when you get women educated they start messing around with stuff i know this is why you can't let them go to school yeah they gotta stay they in think the they home. can do things they gotta stay in the home they gotta do home stuff they gotta home st- i don't know what they do but <laughs> i appreciate that you like can't, I can't even articulate this to, like, dumb do argument. the parody of that. Yeah, no, I can't even do it. No, there's sometimes there's like, I don't understand that viewpoint so much that I can't even like devil's advocate for it to like, I, I don't have the skill. Someone yeah. else should do it because I'm interested. Okay. I would like to hear that argument similar to like our electoral college conversation last week. I, I would like to hear a good argument for it because I don't think I understand the topic fully enough to be like, I have the answer. But anyway, mm-hmm. shall we take a little break? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, you just ended with like why you got to the lady you got to story. Like I was interested in organizing and I wanted to. Da, da, da. So I'm going to tell you how I got to my person too. Um. But I want to take you on a journey, which is like, oh, it's Thanksgiving soon. So I should do a pilgrim and or or a Native American person. And like, I haven't thought about the Mayflower or the first Thanksgiving since probably when I was taught it in fourth grade or fifth grade or whenever. That is a significant throwback. Or kindergarten or wherever you, whenever you learn the like, this is what happened in like a very clean elementary school way. And then I maybe got it in American history. I'll be honest, it didn't really do it for me in terms of, like, the stuff I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Because it was just... Anyway, so I was like, I should give it the benefit of the doubt and learn more about it in this adult sense and see if I can glean anything interesting that I didn't know or what's fascinating about that. Anyway, so I tried to do, like, Mayflower women is where I started. Like, Okay. 
the fact that they got on ships and took months to get here and were compelled by trying to make a better society slash were religious fanatics. Um, what was that like? Uh, it's a super bummer, you guys. I didn't spend a lot of time on it because I didn't, I didn't like where it was going. It was very sad. Oh, no. Spoiler alert, it was very sad. It was sad for the Native Americans that they just sort of, like, fell onto and were like, hey, we live here now. And it was sad for the women because they're coming over on boats and everyone's dying because it's cold and they didn't pack well. I don't know what they did, but it was also a terrible winter. That's why you got to bring layers. Just brutal. Anyway. If anyone has upbeat stories about the first Thanksgiving, I'd love to hear them. But now I know why that story exists, because the reality of it was so sad that they had to make some kind of nice thing happen during that bleak, bleak moment of settling, which was apparently terrible. But I did get onto this tangent. This is so not to do with anything I did. But um, (laughs) yeah, I just like started reading about all these like husbands that died and then they had to remarry and they had kids that died and they had to have more kids. Anyway, but I got into this weird sidebar which is the names that these pilgrims had for their children <laughs> which i don't want to i don't yes oh i my. don't want to make fun of anybody's name like we have all had our elementary school moments where we get made fun of for stupid reasons that your parents gave you like anyway there's the usual mary thomas then we get into like a bartholomew okay fine it's pilgrims okay yeah priscilla fine i'm there peregrine cool First baby mm-hmm. actually born in from um, English settlers in New England. So technically like the first, you know, settler baby. Peregrine. Cool. Like the like Peregrine, like the falcon. Like a falcon. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of neat. Okay. Okay. Eleazar. Okay. Elkanah. Elkanah has elk in it. That can't be good on the playground. Patience. Humility. Oceanus. Because I think he was born on the boat coming over. So we had to have a site-specific name. So that's basically the equivalent of like naming your kid like Acura. Oh, wait. Can you feel where the trajectory of these names are going? Because we're getting into a different zone now. Wrestling. Let me say that again. Wrestling. As in like the activity. Yeah. Yeah. Like my dear baby boy wrestling. Love. Okay. Desire. Odd. Can you? I don't think it was Desiree. I think it was Desire. I'm going to call this baby Desire. I get a lot of creepy vibes from that, and I don't really want to meet those parents, personally. Sorry, if your baby is named Desire. It seems wrong. It just doesn't sit well with me. (laughs) Here's a good one. Here's a good dad joke one. Remember? (laughs) A baby named Remember? Which I think is just... You know, remember. You know who those parents are. They're They're the clowns of the troop resolved my dear baby boy resolved and his brother wrestling i'm sorry do you think that do you think like that's like resi for short i don't know and here's the really just uh cherry on top fear (laughs) f-e-a-r fear my dear baby girl fear brewster and fear cushman because there wasn't just one (laughs) <laughs> that was a trendy name among this is what they were dealing with i'm just saying it was not a great time <laughs> 1620s new england i'd wa- i don't want to go there i don't want to No, there. i just i guess the question is like when you as the child who've been named fear mm. by your parents do you then become very afraid or do you become like terrifying I don't like know. which direction do you take that in 
I don't, maybe you cause fear in others. I don't know. I don't. Anyway, fear got married <laughs> to Isaac Allerton, who is a um, uh, eventually had a descendant known as Zachary Taylor, who became the twelfth president of the United States. So, well, there we go. There's my little fascinating fact about fear booster. Fear. Anyway, I can't. So I take it though we're not going to talk about Puritan baby names. That's not the whole episode. So I got to fear and I was like, I don't want to live in this world for this episode. (laughs) Maybe another time. I don't need this in my life right now. If anyone wants to tell me that fear is not the way it's pronounced and it's fear or something fun, I would love to hear it. I didn't really. The second I got into this amount of research, I was like, I don't think I'm committed. So then I was like, okay, let's do the other side of the story that we don't know enough about, which is like a Native American story or an indigenous person story. Um... So I know very little to anything about, you know, the most prominent Native Americans. So that'll be new and interesting territory. So I found Molly Brandt. Um, Molly Brandt, also known as Mary Brandt, kind of interchangeably, because I guess Molly is a nickname of Mary, which is weird. Things I did not know. The same amount of syllables and sounds. I don't know how nicknames work. Um She's born around 1736, and her parents were of the Mohawk uh, tribe. Uh, They had been, there was a tendency at this point in the 1700s, the, back to Jesuits, French Jesuits had already been to this region and done a lot of missionary work. So there's a decent, uh, there's a decent amount of Christian Mohawks at this time that had taken on Christianity Mm -hmm. as as a faith. uh, and so she was raised as a Christian Mohawk, but very much of the tribe and very much in the culture. However, they have these very clear, like, European names. So once the French left, they started as uh, with uh, being converted to Catholicism, which is the French national religion. Mm-hmm. But um, over time, more English settled in the area, which is sort of like New York, Canada region is sort of where they, they we're living. And so by the 18th century, there's more English influence there. And so the Catholicism sort of segued into Anglican. So they're fully like Anglicized names. She does have a Mohawk name in her language. She has two actually. Uh, I'm going to try because I think their language is really pretty, but I didn't, I couldn't find a phonetic Mm -hmm. sound of it. Uh, I couldn't hear somebody say it in my research. So I'm going to try and read it, which is a challenge for me as a person. Kunwatsitsiani, that's my best hit at it. And Degwadadant is the other name for her. I think it means, uh, yeah, um, her birth name the, is someone lends her a flower, is what it means. Um, and then the other Mohawk name, which is given to her when she reaches adulthood. So I think it's more to like suit the personality of the person. Um, Degwadadanti is uh, two against one. Is what that means, which I find interesting. That's a cool vibe. I, I'm really here for that vibe. Yeah. So isn't that cool? Um, Mohawk as, as a as a people are matrilineal in that they have clan mothers. And the other thing I read in my research was that the clan mothers get together and then elect the chief. So there's still this sort of male representative of uh, the entire organization, but it comes through the women. And when you're born, you're born into the woman's clan. In a way, like that's oh, the way okay. hereditary is passed. In in what I read, I could do much more research about Mohawks in general, but I was trying to like figure out her whole life story. Um, so I'm gonna go back and read more just because 
there's there's so much. So let's see. So here's something I also learned, thanks to Molly Brandt. So she's of the Mohawk tribe. Some would call her of the Iroquois nation. And when you hear Iroquois, you think of certain people. Um, I don't know. What do you think of? I think of elementary school learning about different Native American tribes, but. What do you think of when you think of Iroquois? Yeah, I think of the the Iroquois Federation, which is this sort of like larger political structure, um, and like sort of like the like New York, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. like your hundred percent right region. So this blew my mind. Iroquois is a name. French settlers come over, and they meet up with some Native Americans, and those Native Americans look at these other Native Americans, and they go. And they are not of the same tribe, but the French don't know that. So the first group that met them called them Iliquois, I think is the way they pronounced it. And it got mistranslated into Iroquois by the French because it's a very French looking Mm -hmm. word. And it actually meant those people are real like snake people. Like they're, they're, they're shifty. I mean, it was slang basically because the first group of Native Americans didn't like the other group. The French only picked up on the sound of the word and not the tone, I guess. And so... Mm-hmm. That seems right. Actually calling them Iroquois is maybe not super great because it comes from this sort of derogatory slang term that this one tribe had for these oh. group of people. But... Oh, interesting. I know. The reason I know this, which should be backed up by other sources, but was this man I found on YouTube doing like a seminar for kids and he's of one of these um five nations or five tribes that did band together as you know indigenous uh, iroquois what we would know as iroquois but he goes through this whole story of like that actually means real snake people so actually you're doing three things wrong when you're calling us iroquois but we we like to be called is the hodosono hodon ah i'm so sorry hodonosoni hodonosoni yeah that's what it is Hodonosone, and that means the people that are building the longhouse, which is also sometimes mistranslated into what Iroquois means. But it's these five tribes that over time found a common goal of binding together, but still kind of maintaining their own um, identities. But when they needed to, they would help one another, or you know, take up each other's causes as they as they needed. Anyway, that was a whole other tangent that I went on. Um, so we're going to call them the Hodonosoni instead of Iroquois for the rest of this podcast, because apparently it's super wrong. Thanks, YouTube. Those nations are known as, those five tribes are known as the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. Is that five? Yeah, that's five. Um, Seneca, you might have heard of. Uh, so you know where we're at in that New York-y region. Mm-hmm. So, uh, she kind of lives this branched life because of where she was living and her upbringing uh being christian being mohawk being um raised in these missionary schools she has a lot of exposure to uh european lifestyle so she has this ability to go between the two very well um eventually her father dies her mother remarries a mohawk uh chief of the time and so they take on his name as like a sign of respect, but she, that kind of elevates status within the community. And she sort of takes on more of this responsibility, I think, along with her brother. Um, 
she starts kind of participating in events that uh, she accompanies a delegation of elders to Philadelphia because they were trying to talk about some land transactions that were happening between settlers in the West taking native land for maybe less than uh, positive circumstances. And she starts kind of putting herself out there as like helping um, Mm -hmm. her community with those concerns. It wasn't out of the range of, as we said, since it's a matrilineal society, it wasn't out of the range of like experience for her to participate, especially with her education and ability. She then finds her way to meeting this guy called William Johnson. And William Johnson is, uh, I think he's the head of Indian affairs for the province of New York at this time, because it's the late 1760s, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. England controls this area. He has to go out and communicate with the tribe and make sure there's, you know, a positive relationship, trade, to a certain extent assimilate, but also advocate for them should they require it back to the crown and speak on their behalf. Um, He was apparently very adept at this. He was skilled at it. I don't think, from what I read, he didn't look down upon it in any way. Um, He... He was good at his job, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, and I think, I don't, did you find it, but my my sense is that, particularly in the years, like, right before the revolution, the crown and Native American tribes tend to get along better than, like, the colonists and Native American we're tribes. We're gonna get there. Um, oh my, okay. So she's, uh, she meets William Johnson. He, here's why he's a little bit of a different character. He has a common law German wife at this time. It doesn't matter that she's German. I just thought I would tell you because it matters more to white people in the 1700s that she's German and he's English. Mm-hmm. What a radical relationship. He has three children by her. He claims them all as his children. They live openly as uh, not married, married people, partners. I don't know. The 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 18th century equivalent of whatever that is. And uh, she unfortunately passes away. Um he takes up with Mary at this moment, who has been on the land or with the land for a little bit of time. And they've crossed paths before, but they become an item. And she goes on to be his common law wife in this new way. There's some thought that they have a Native American ceremony. And it's just the white people being like, they're not married. It wasn't in a church. Um, or they just didn't care and didn't do it. It's it's unclear. But he had this reputation of doing that beforehand. And he continued to do it with her. So um, it was on the up and up as she was fully 23 by the time they got together. He was 44. Say what you will. But she was at least we'll over 15. T- we'll take what we can get. Hey, mm-hmm. she was over 18. Very exciting. A missing history exclusive. She's apparently like... Pretty, smart, adept, able to speak two languages. She's been doing the multicultural thing her whole life, and he is in the business of doing that professionally. So there's a lot of common ground between the two of them. And I think a lot of Mm -hmm. um, benefit for the two of them to be together. Like, he has this new bridge into the Native American community. She has this whole bridge of advocating for her people to the English directly. So it's sort of this perfect kind of storm of benefit for both parties uh they go on to have eight children a lot of kids so it is a fully committed situation happening up here in new york she by all accounts runs the house it's one of these big estates i mean there's uh i think there's a couple african slaves just to not give her too much credit that they are 
doing that with. And, uh, you know, there's servants and stuff and there's always, there's people coming and going and business taking place in the house. And by all accounts, she is the head of the household, um, as a female role would be at this time. So for her to also be an indigenous person was sort of, it was novel, but also like not a big deal when you came into this home. There was a, a lot of mm-hmm. just uh, solemnity given to her. It should also be noted that her whole life she spoke in her native language. She wore native clothing. Um, so for it to be just so openly modern <laughs> in a lot of its sensibilities is pretty staggering for this time. Yeah, she was a prudent and faithful housekeeper. I'm not gonna. Sp- I'm not gonna read all the stuff that they said about it because it just doesn't translate well to 21st century. I was gonna say that's like that's the 18th century version of just like an awesome Tinder bio right there. Yeah, I mean it's everything you want. She uh, treated her with every respect, furnished her and the children with every comfort and luxury befitting an upper class family, provided generously for them in his will. And he permitted the children to bear his surname. There's just, like, no shame on their family whatsoever, which I find so encouraging to read about. Um, She would take up some of decision-making while he might have been away from the home, especially dealing with Indian affairs and his jurisdiction. Her experience with her background sort of made her perfectly suited to do so. Um, But as we know, in the 1770s, um, the relationship of... Europeans and colonists is maybe not going great and he is of the crown so um the unfortunate thing for everyone involved is that William uh, actually passes away at the age of 59 in 1774 which is like peak time to lose your main tie with the British crown if you're sort of British sympathetic um at this mm-hmm. point she's sort of you know does this common law Native American wife own this big, nice house, or is she sent packing? And I think the answer is she's sent packing. But he did provide for them in the will, so she does get some money, and she does get to keep some of her wares. But her whole deal is just like, cool, I have children. I have eight of these children. I gotta go work some stuff out. He leaves her money, but he doesn't leave her the house. I don't think they want to stay in that area. Because it soon becomes a hotbed of issues, right? And I think the other thing is the house maybe isn't... Well, it is called Johnson Hall. Yeah, I'm not sure who owns the will. Eventually, she gets it back, but anyway, we'll get there. Okay, okay. Um, she, she decides to take her kids with her closer to her family. Um, her brother Joseph is becoming quite prominent in the Mohawk Nation as like a, a leader in his own right. And she is respected quite rightly by a lot of her people so she she goes to fort niagara also like there's clearly like a british like you were saying there's a british friendship um so staying in the colonies is proving to be not a smart decision of hostilities increasing and uh lines being laid about who whose side you're on um she goes to fort niagara canada in 1777 she had to leave so quickly because of the tension there that she left most of her stuff behind. And one of the one of the nations of the Haudenosaunee ended up siding with the colonists, so there was some friction within their community itself as well. She uh, starts a trading business as soon as she gets settled so she can stay um, economically solvent during the time. Uh, as she gains some wealth, she also tries to participate in the in the tension as much as possible by um, sheltering 
and feeding loyalists as they came through, providing arms and ammunition to those who were fighting for the British. Oh, by the way, this is not a pro-American story, so we're just going to have to get over it. Uh, not surprised. Not a big uh, deal. American She's... track record with Native Americans is not great at this point and is not going to get much better. Yeah, so we're just going to... We're not going to get all nationalistic on it. She's just doing what she can with the stuff she has. Uh, she, uh, Her brother is trying... Originally, the Six Nations of the Haudenosaunee uh, wanted to remain neutral. One of them goes to the colonists. The rest are all trying to stay neutral. Her brother is trying to say we shouldn't be neutral. We should side with the crown because they're promising to give us all our land back should they win and like we get all of these. The colonies aren't promising to do that at all. They're just going to overrun us like they've been doing. She's doing her humanitarian efforts as best she can <coughs> while also providing arms and ammunition as I said. Uh, she also is said to have conveyed intelligence to military scouting or some or passing along you know the information coming through her trading post. Um, success. She uh, results in passing along information that helps um, route American forces in 1777. Okay so not messing around. Yeah so She's sort of this, you know, First Nation. Is that what they say in Canada about the Native people? Cultural icon of the time. Um, of course, we all know how the war ends. It doesn't go great for the side that she was sympathetic with. But she was seen as a great ally for the British and was appreciated thusly. Um, so much so, like, she she also motivated morale in a lot of ways. It would go and speak with these Native populations to help say, you know, advocate for the British cause. Um, so the British military quite rightly gave her a lot of deference and, uh, were very kind to her in whatever way they could be. Uh, after the war, oh, so much happened. But, um, the Mohawks who traveled to Montreal during the war, they settle there and there's some tension between who is going to lead them at the time. There's some that are coming from Fort Niagara. There's some that are loyal to her brother. There's some tension there. She doesn't necessarily want to go there. She tries to settle. Her kids are now grow, grown or growing up. So she um, tries to live with three of her daughters in Kingston, Ontario. And that's where she builds a house. Or actually, I'm sorry. She gets the government to build her house out of like respect and yes. thank you for all of what she did for them. Um, it wasn't huge, but it was enough, and she was right next door to her brother, so she could live near him, and, um, they could participate in the tribe together, and she was also granted a pension of 100 pounds per year, and a supplement of 1,200 pounds for property losses because of the revolution, because she had to leave, um, so abruptly from the area that she wanted to live in. So she's getting compensated for her, like, New York property mm -hmm. that she's lost. Mm-hmm. Because, let me skip down to that. So, Johnson's estate had passed along through Mary's children and grandchildren, um, but they could never return there. But technically, it was still an ownership of them. However, the New York legislature ruled that Brant and her children, as Indians, could not own the 15,000 acres of land bequeathed to them by Sir William Johnson and said it legally belonged to his heir, John Johnson. He was under the 1779 Act of Attainder. So the property reverted to the state, conveniently. Very convenient. It was then sold to settlers and speculators and put into the coffers of New York. That feels very on brand. Very on brand. So here's a weird archaic rule that says you never owned it to begin with. We're going to take the money and run. Thanks. Good day. Enjoy Ontario. And she did. She had a great time. 
<laughs> At some point, so the British government knew that she had gained losses from the American Revolution. They compensated her for that. They also gave her the yearly pension for her efforts during the war. At some point, because of her influence on the Native people, the United States wanted some kind of... I, I think she was just seen as a really good PR get. She could, like, motivate and speak and participate mm-hmm. in in, in um, Native American politics in such a way that the U.S. was like, we need some public relations help with those folks because we don't treat them great. Molly, come get on our team. And she was like, uh, why would I do that? No, thank you. And then I think all the shenanigans with her house happened. So a little petty, petty fighting occurred. Um, I, too, don't have a lot of information about her after about 17, what did I say, 1777 until 1796 when she passes away in Kingston, which is where her three of her daughters had settled um, she was about 60 years old. It seems like after the revolution, she sort of, like, settled into life and, like, lived amongst her people. And the main thing they say is, like, she wore native dress and spoke her language till the day she died, which was seen as a great prideful moment. Or not prideful, but, like, a patriotic moment. Um, especially as so much assimilation is sort of taken up in the ether at that time. And yeah. she did have this Anglican act, but, or not act, this Anglican background, um, but it seems like she had immense pride in her native traditions. So I said the stuff about the house. Nonsense. Um, but I guess the biggest crazy thing is that in 1988, they started doing some archaeological testing around this home that they thought was her, uh, the old structure of her home that they built in Kingston. Mm-hmm. So they did a deep dive and like started excavating it. And they didn't find a lot, but they did find the kind of like... I guess privy, which I don't even want to think about as 18th century privy at the time. But <laughs> going back to like a conversation we had months ago about like, what was hygiene like? What what were they doing? Yes. What were they doing? They found ivory toothbrushes in the like... Fascinating. Yeah, she had a toothbrush in 1777 and an ivory one, which was like, boom. But also one made of bone. Ooh, whose bone? I don't know. It's a little creepy, but... um. It made me want to go back of, like, we should do our weird hygiene episodes soon because Molly Bryant was brushing her yes. teeth in the 1700s, and I want to know more about that. And it was, like, really intricately carved. Yeah. Isn't that wild? So I, I'm assuming there were, like, bri- there were bristles of some sort that, like, didn't survive, but it's not just, like, rubbing. The bristles weren't there, but you could see you could see the little holes of where you would stick the mm-hmm. bristles. Yeah. Oh, no, so it looked cool. like, you, yeah. If you re-bristled it, you use it today. I wouldn't want to because it was founded in an 18th century privy hole, which made it sound not great. But anyway, she's Just now like seen as bleach. sort of a... Um, right up. She's seen as a First Nation hero in Canada. She had a commemorative stamp a few years ago. Um, she's sort of seen as this founding mother of a lot of um, Mohawk traditions. And then I found this wonderful... I think it was on... It was on PBS NewsHour. It was a clip on YouTube as well. As I was learning about the language and the Haudenosaunee mm-hmm. uh, background, that um, in 1979, a small Mohawk tribe in New York, upstate, um, formed a, a freedom school where today Mohawk children continue to learn their native language and culture. And it's out of direct. So in 1979, the people that formed it were all living the experience of their parents who had been 
forcibly taken from their families and forced to assimilate into Western ideals. So they form their own school and it's still in operation today. And um, there's also a Mary Bryant school specifically. It's not necessarily Native American, but she has a school named after her, which I thought was cool. And yeah, in this YouTube clip, they talk about how the language is formed and like the intricacies of it. And the journalist is just sort of blown away. And it was, um, it was a good piece. So I think I'll put that link in the description if anybody's curious about it. Um, yeah. The kids well, at the really school were so adorable and like had such pride in what they were learning. It was very encouraging. It was sweet to see. But also very odd because it's pre-COVID. So they're all just running around without masks on. And I was like, it feels so unsafe. But yeah, <laughs> different time. They all run up and hug the reporter at the beginning because they're like five or six. And I was like, no, you can't do that. Oh, no touching plastic? no touching yeah no touching um but i thought that was kind of a cool note to end on of like someone who spoke her own language her whole life like seeing her community make efforts to restore that kind of knowledge and cultural identity they they were so adamant that it was it was very because i think there's something to be said about i think they say it in the article where because your name is such an identifier and specific to you the language matters so much because it gives you your identity. It gives you your name, gives you like how you are known. So that just made me sort of grasp onto the whole Mohawk thing and then find a Mohawk heroine of British sympathy, which we're going to just be okay with. You know, she did what she had to do at the time, you know, be a hard fight to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone is going to say that like the United States has done well by like the indigenous communities it interacts with. So I don't think anyone is going to be surprised yeah. that the bar is low. <laughs> and like the British probably weren't. I mean, it was all, it's all trash, but she was doing, she did a lot with her time, I think. Yeah. It's, I, right. It's, I, I think it's really cool to sort of see someone navigating like really well, the sort of intricate, pol like the complicated politics of being sort of, a person of means and like with different relationships in that revolutionary period when everyone was trying to figure out like whose side are you on and how does that play out and what does yeah. that look like for you and your life and in this case for her it looked like you lose your house but also get like a pretty dope pension mm -hmm. and figure out as a single mom how to move eight children across like upstate new york into canada no big deal right in the 1770s yeah Totally chill. Yeah, just to put do. him in the minivan. Can totally handle it. Yeah, probably not enough is said about that um, in my history of her story. So, yeah, that's Molly Brandt. Mary Brandt. Many names. She who lends a flower. Amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I guess the biggest takeaway about Alex Trebek, too, like, this can cap it if you want, is, like, it's it's okay to be a nice, like, chill person. I don't know. He's like of a Fred Rogers ilk. I think so. He fi he feels in like a similar world of people who are ju their thing is they're just mm, they're good. Like there's nothing juicy about them. Yeah, I mean it in the kindest way. He's a gentle man. You know what I mean? He's just a gentleman mm -hmm. in like the best sense of that word. They need yeah. to reown. They also, need to claim that and reown it as like a Fred Rogers, you know, as yeah, person. Yeah, we've, we've got some work to do. Modern masculinity, the modern gentleman. You're kind, you're quiet, you're smart, you're chill, you like a sweater. You're Canadian, apparently. 
Yeah, you got a Canadian vibe to you. <laughs> yeah, I think you it feels, do like, more it feels with, like a good goal. Yeah, more microphones on those guys, I think. Mm-hmm. Not that they want them. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. And thank you for listening to Missing History. <laughs>